sung, Precious Father, reveal your heart to me. And I hope that's a prayer for all of us, uh, especially on a topic such as uh, this one. So our kids will be leaving for Kids Church, so thank you children and, and leaders. We're looking at submission. So this is our second message on submission. And it's from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. And it is overall, it is part 21 in our series on the epistle of the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. So we are following up on the message of submission that we started last week. So if you want to make more sense of what we are discussing this morning, you really need to listen to last week's message. Or if you want the notes, I can send them to you. Here, the Apostle Paul applies the, the, the theme that is presented in verse 21 to specific relationships. And the first one that he takes up is that of husbands and wives. So strap yourselves in and enjoy the ride. It's going to get a little bit bumpy. What we want to do is establish a distinctly Christian understanding of marriage and the family because... It is an institution that it is under attack, both from without and from within. Someone said, and this is true, someone said the home is where you are loved the most and also where you can experience the most pain. This, that's certainly been the experience of many of us here, myself included. So the words I'm sharing are from the Lord. I'll try to remove myself from this as much as I can because I want the word of the Lord to speak to us. And hopefully the Lord can use an idiot like me to present his word. So we will make a mess, we will make a mess of this passage if we don't keep Jesus' humility and, and submission to his heavenly Father before us as the, the ultimate example of what it is to follow Jesus' example in Christian homes. Many Christian writers and pastors have danced around around this this very clear teaching that we have here in the Scriptures. They contend that what Paul teaches is mutual submission between husbands and wives. So they take verse 21 as as the, the overall and they say all the other relationships are about mutual submission. But this is this is an incorrect interpretation of the original language and the structure of the original language. Mutual submission within the household is not found in what follows. Wives are directed to submit to their husbands, children to their parents, and slaves to their earthly masters. Husbands are not directed to submit to their wives, but to love them as Christ loved the church. Parents are not told to submit to their children. That is until the 21st century, when that seems to be quite in vogue at the moment. 
bosses are not told to submit to their workers, even though you might have a strong union and things could change. I don't know. But I hope we don't miss the main point here because of the cultural pressures that we live in. Because I think it's pretty clear what the Bible is teaching us here in, the, in these verses. So let's look at the, at the context. Let's look at the context. The word submission conjures up all kinds of negative images of a woman you know, being barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. And under control of a, of a macho husband who shouts orders to his wife while he's sitting on the couch watching the footy. But it's very important to consider that Jesus and Paul did more to protect the rights and the dignity of women, Gentiles and slaves than anyone else in history. We recall the verse from last week, from Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Equal standing. And in this chapter, Paul completely undermines the first century legal code which held that a husband had absolute rights over his wife and his children. He could do pretty much as he pleased, as he wanted with those in his household, including physical abuse if he saw fit. The Jews themselves had a very low view of women that could not be seen with women. This is, for example, we see that in John chapter 4 when Jesus was a Samaritan woman. In the Jewish form of morning prayer, I'll give you one example. In the Jewish form of morning prayer, there was a sentence in which a Jewish man gave thanks that God had not made him a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Now, I thank God that I'm not a woman simply because I don't want to go through the birth pains. Uh, apart from that, I'd have no issue, and I think that's made possible today, right? Because birthing mothers and all of that. Oh, goodness. Anyway, let's not go there. Greek wives would leave the Jews, would go to the Greeks. Greek wives were expected to run the home and care for their husband's legitimate children. But it was normal for the husband to find his pleasure and companionship elsewhere in the arms of his concubine or lover. For the Romans, the marriage bond was even worse. An absolute mess. It was not unheard of for a man to be marrying his 23rd wife and he might be her 21st husband. Elizabeth Taylor, get your heart out. So we must not forget that Paul's emphasis upon mutual submission is first and foremost to Christ. To Christ. That is the mutual submission. A wife's submission to a husband and a husband's sacrificial love for his wife 
is therefore revolutionary at the time. That's already going against the very grain of society on the day. Now today, we're looking at the old context, we're looking at it in today's context. Today things are different in the West because society has largely benefited from the principles presented to us here in the scriptures that women bear the image of God and are to be cherished, protected and provided for by their husbands. So let's just be clear that nothing in the verses that follow are inconsistent with the true freedom, liberation of human beings from all humiliation, exploitation, abuse and oppression. Women have equal standing and many of the same career opportunities as men, not because of some secular liberation movements, but because of Christianity which is the very thing that they are rejecting today. But if you look at 2,000 years of history, and secular historians point to this, it tells another story. It tells the truth. So let's start off with wives, verses 22 to 24. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also should submit to their husbands in everything. The key phrase here is, as you do to the Lord. This does not mean that the wife is to revere and worship her husband as though he were the Lord. Let's just get that clear. And it should be obvious that when we look at the context of this verse, that Paul does not have in mind any inferiority. Or indeed that all women must be in subjection to all men in every situation. But this is exactly one of the points that is made today by some, that one cannot really be in submission and not be inferior at the same time. That's one of the points they make. Here, the wife is instructed to be subject to her husband as the head of the family, not because he is such a wonderful man, but because she has a previous and primary relationship to her Saviour and Lord, Jesus Christ. So this principle of headship is, is then taken from the very Godhead himself. So, God, the three, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And where do we get this from? Paul talks about this to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I want you to realise, he says, that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So if God is the head of Christ, are we then to assume that Jesus is inferior to God, God the Father. No, the scriptures tell us that our Lord Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity and he is equal with, with the Father in all things. In all things that make up the deity. 
So people gain the, the wrong impression, unfortunately, by taking texts out of their context that this means the wife is to obey the husband in everything. Well, that's wrong. It hardly needs to be said that no husband has the right to ask his wife something which is morally wrong. Here we have an obedience that is conditioned by the word of God. And when the husband is not obeying scripture, it is obviously more important that the wife obey the Lord above all things, including her husband. It's important for us to remember that. A Christian that is submitted to Christ will not try to establish a home that disobeys the word of God. This explains, at a very basic level, why a Christian should marry a Christian and not become unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Yes, some Christian marriages, unfortunately, fall away because of sin, but a Christian marrying an unbeliever invites a civil war from the very beginning. You're setting yourself up for trouble from the very beginning. Now, I understand that things are a lot more complex if after they are married that one spouse, the husband or the wife becomes a believer, fully committed believer, while the other remains an unbeliever. It, it, it happens, and maybe some of you here are, are, are in that. And we have words of, of, in the scriptures, both Paul and, and Peter address this, this situation. What is it that you're supposed to do? But the overall teaching from scripture is for the husband to encourage his wife to express her desires, speak her viewpoint and make decisions for what's best for the family. But when it comes to the ultimate decision, she is to honour his decision, his choice. This is essentially what it means in everything. So I think a a good example of, of a godly wife is found in a familiar passage at the end of Proverbs. Proverbs, and we're just going to look at uh, a couple of verses here. Proverbs 31, verses 23 to uh, 27, but you really need to look at, at the rest of the, the passage to, to appreciate. It says in verse 23, Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the, the elders of the land. He hasn't got a very hard job. He just sits down and makes decisions. Obviously, sitting at the gate meant that he was part of the leader. He, would ju- he was like a judge. That's where a lot of people went to resolve their, their issues. Meanwhile, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. 
Now, this is hardly the description of a woman who's barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. Mind you, there are some women who have found their calling in, in that, and I commend you for that. They are happy to do that. That is, that is amazing. But here we have a very industrious person. She, she's wise, she's godly. She's a suitable, more than a suitable helper for her husband in every way. She goes and does things. And her husband lets her because they are husband and wife, part of a team. They complement each other. Now that's a big word in this discussion, complementary, by the way. The other side is egalitarian. Anyway, let's not go there. Before we move on to husbands, we need, we need to ask just how, because he talks here that the church is subject to Christ. So, so we need to ask just how is the church subject to Christ? Because both in the present and in its 2,000 year history, it has been shown to be, the church has been shown to be selfish, rebellious, and just plain sinful. So the church is not setting a very high standard for wives or indeed anyone to emulate, one would think. But it is obvious that the Apostle does not have in mind the present reality of the church's imperfection, but her calling, her ideal, how she is to be subject to Christ. And it's not that difficult to bag a church. It's not that hard. At the same time, let's be careful. I've said this before, please be careful because we are talking about the beloved bride of the creator of the universe. And it follows that as a body of believers, we are to be careful about what we say about the bride of Christ. Like somebody else coming around and saying nasty things about your wife. Hey, that's my wife you're talking about. So let us also be careful about what we say about those who are part, fellow believers within the church. Because the church is us. Husbands, now. Verses 25 to 33. And I'll read these words again, just so we can understand the the flow of the passage here. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect 
her husband. The apostle does not merely say, love your wives as Christ loved the church, but he goes on to describe what that love looks like. And how does it look like? He says, he gave himself up for her. And the rest flows on from that. So if the requirement, you need to get me on this one, if the requirement for submission you consider to be really hard for the wife, what is required for the husband seems almost impossible. Inconceivable. Much harder. All you have to do is submit to your husband. Look what we have to do. So the argument would go. And and we are talking much more than just passionate romance and sentimental love. Not only is his obligation to love his wife repeated three times, right? But also, the same number of times is his obligation to model that attitude on Christ's love. Three times, three times. Put simply, the husband into love his wife, nothing more, nothing less than with the love of Christ. That's your supreme example model. And, and, and in these verses, there's a constant interweaving of Christ's love for the church and the husband's love for the bride. So is he talking about the church? Is he talking about marriage? And it just sort of goes together seamlessly. Now we will look at Christ's love for the church in, in, in a threefold way. And I hope you can, you can follow me on this here. So it follows in the three tenses, both in the past, in the present, and in the future. That's how Christ's love for the church is, is expressed in this passage. With respect to the past, it says here, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He didn't die in order to love the church, but he died because he did love the church. The totality of self-sacrifice. You cannot possibly do any more than that. And to me, self-sacrifice sounds exactly the opposite of control and domination, doesn't it? While Christ has authority over the church, he exercises their authority in a loving way providing for his church, protecting his church. And this is what a Christian husband is called to do for his wife. With respect to the present, what does it say? It says, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. I must say that in the first century they would have been a lot more familiar with the image here of, of washing. And it's, it's really a ceremonial washing. Because before the wedding, the bride was given, a, she was given a ceremonial bath. The bride was perfumed and then dressed in bridal garments, reserved only 
for that occasion and, and that was passed down through the, the generations. Similarly, Christ sanctifies his bride, the church, with the washing of water and by the word. I don't know whether you realise it or not, but you are here in order for the word of God to have a cleansing effect on you. You are being washed by the word. We're trying to wash away all those external stuff that could, you know, leave spots and stains on us. That's why it's important to to read the scriptures. They are the cleansing agents of God's sanctifying ministry in our lives. And with respect to the future, with respect to the future, you will notice that the church is looked at here as a bride to be presented to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's presented as a, as a, as a glorious, glorious church. And these words serve to remind us that marriage is a picture of how Jesus is, even now, preparing his church for that great wedding feast. It's one day it's going to happen. It's going to come. The bridegroom will return and it's going to be amazing. I haven't got words for it, truly. We're all waiting for that day. And it's all, the image is all there of, of the wedding, this glorious event. And this is what John tells us from our first reading this morning, Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 8. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude. If you've ever been in a, in a, in a stadium, full stadium, I experienced this in the 2000 Olympics. Um, in the four, I was there in the 400 metres when Kathy Freeman won the Metal. I was right there at the finish line, but you know, right up there in the really high. But the whole stadium was shaking. You could feel it. It was like a roar that as she was running, you could, the whole thing, I'm saying, this is going to fall. <laughs> but it was like a roar, like an earthquake that, that was coming. You could experience it and you could not help but every part of your body was just caught up in this emotion of the triumph. And it says, like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder and the shouting. And this is very quiet, by the way. No! This is, this is the extreme. This is, everybody's out there. You're losing your voice. You're losing it. Hallelujah. For our Lord, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. Nothing quiet about it. They're out of their skin. They're they're excited for what is happening. 
or what they're experiencing. What a wonderful event to look forward to. And we look at the church today. It's not perfect. It has spots, wrinkles, spots and stains. One way to look at it is that spots and stains are caused by defilement on the outside, while wrinkles are caused by decay on the inside. Right? We all know what wrinkles are. And yet there will come a day where there were no spots or wrinkles. Another way to look at it is to recognise that these garments are not simply washed, but they are ironed as well. All the wrinkles are gone. The time is coming when he will come for us to take us to his presence. We will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will spend eternity with him. And now he says in verse 31, For this reason a man will leave, will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He goes beyond culture. He goes beyond customs. He goes beyond what is acceptable norms all the way back to the act of creation in Genesis. This is where at that moment in time, untainted, sinless, perfect humanity started and once existed. And here, that picture in in the garden in creation is a picture, even then in in the foreknowledge and predestination of God, of what it was going to be like at the end of time. We go back to the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. So in the end, it's almost like we go back to the beginning of what it was meant to be. And here, God established marriage back in Genesis. It established marriage to meet meet man's emotional, physical, social needs. And here Paul raises the other need, which is the spiritual And he set up this template for all of humanity. Because marriage is an exclusive relationship between two people ordained and sanctioned by God. And according to this passage, it's the greatest relationship that can exist between two people this side of heaven. It is a covenant. And finally, to conclude, there are three mysteries which are mentioned in this letter. If you recall, we spoke about the inclusion of the Gentiles that we looked at. That was the first mystery. Then we will look at later on the mystery of the Gospel. And here, this profound mystery of the Church's union with Christ. It's not a secret, but it is a revealed mystery, revealed to us, his children, his family. And, and it's incredible, isn't it, that to see how the biblical pattern of married life points directly to the relationship between Christ and the church, how it all fuses together. 
in the mind of God. And here we are. These words that we have looked at are are sacred words. If God has spoken to us, we need to understand that this is his pattern for us. This is how he wants us to live. It is a charter for genuine freedom in Christ. For loving families, loving churches, and creating a society that is not in conflict, but is directed towards the principle which God has created us to be. May God give us the strength and the wisdom and the and the knowledge to impart this knowledge to others, to our kids, our grandkids and others, that this is God's will for us. God bless us. Amen.